0: Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbellay, and this is recorded live on TalkShoe on August 21st, 2009. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota podcasts. For more information on the Biota podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. And for those interested in calling in, the best way to get the call-in details is also via biota.org slash podcast. The next episode on September the 4th at 8 p.m. Pacific, post-singular and post-apocalyptic. This is a topic uh, which has come up because the Singularity Summit is occurring in New York City in October. And I thought uh, September was an ideal month to somewhat debunk, somewhat cover, somewhat analyze, somewhat discuss the singularity movement and whether artificial life developers are post-pre or just play non-singular. And also with regards to the current economy and I think the relatively abysmal situation that most of us face in terms of uh, employment, Uh, those of us that are working seem to be losing working conditions, those of us that aren't working seem to uh, just be losing conditions full stop. So a number of topics associated with that kicking off next Biotal Live September the 4th. I'm talking with Mark Badeau currently about doing a special bio live at some time other than the uh, Friday at 8 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, Mark is doing a lot of travelling currently, and uh, he would like to be on a bio live. He'd like to talk about a number of the issues that have been discussed, particularly associated with the International Society of Artificial Life, and also working out ways. Uh, that uh, the International Society can kind of broaden its membership. I think the uh, the general narrative associated with what's been going on recently is that the artificial life community is quite diverse. It doesn't just exist in academia. It doesn't just exist as hobbyists, a uh, number of different folk, and also those in industry. And really coaxing the folk who are developing artificial life in industry into the broader communication it's going to be one of the primary topics. So if you remember the last time Mark Bidot was on Bio2Live, uh, it's going to be a continuation of that discussion, but primarily focusing on the International Society of Artificial Life and what the International Society uh, will be doing in the future. Obviously, the current financial situation internationally and the effect on uh, software engineers, be they professional software engineers, researchers, uh, students, etc., folks who develop artificial life, either professionally or as a hobby, the conditions are pretty appalling currently. So it's going to be an interesting uh, discussion. I will announce when Mark Badeau is on specifically. I just see Steve Grant in the chat. So hopefully he'll be calling in in a minute. Um, So I'll announce that through the Biota Conversations mailing list. In order to get to that mailing list, go to the Biota site, click Mailing Lists at the top, and you'll get to the Biota Conversations. And I recommend if you regularly listen to this podcast, that you subscribe to the Biota Conversations mailing list because it's a very useful way of getting information and also continuing the discussion from uh, every Biota Live conversation. So I had mentioned in previous Biota Lives that I'd be heading to Northern California in mid-September. However, unfortunately, I had to cancel that trip. I canceled it for a number of reasons. Uh, Bruce Damer will probably not be in California when I'm there, and obviously I wanted to do some work with Bruce In addition to giving a talk at Greytham Silicon Valley, it's pretty expensive, actually, to get to the Bay Area currently, so I just wanted to kind of, in these times, minimise my travel uh, with the view that when Bruce is definitely going to be in the Bay Area, I would head back and do a a Greytham Silicon Valley talk. As I mentioned at the start of the show, there is going to be a a lot of post-singularity or whether we should even engage in the discussion at all Related conversation on uh, Biota Lives coming up in the future, but I think the the narrative associated with the contemporary singularity movement is quite distinct to what we've been discussing in Biota Live to date. And I have the pleasure of unmuting Steve Grant. Hello, Steve.
1: Hey, Tom. How are you doing?
0: Pretty good. Pretty good. So you've come to Bios Live in the news and notes, and I was just discussing the Singularity Summit that's going to be going on in New York in October. What's your uh, view with regards to the Singularity movement?
1: Is it a movement? I haven't seen much movement towards the singularity. It's uh, just all hot air, as far as I can see. It's uh, well, I think it's pretty damaging in terms of PR for, for the artificial intelligence movement. That's for sure.
0: Certainly, I think also it's it's pretty damaging for artificial life developers because there's kind of a, a a certain level of astroturf which one needs to overcome. Particularly if you know one's doing any kind of development, there's always the compare and contrast, and there's the kind of loud megaphone broadcast system that seems to uh, be attached to the singularity movement. So, um, I mean, certainly I've had discussions through the community many of these discussions you've been a part of in some regard about whether we need to be proactive in terms of our kind of anti towards uh, the singularity. I mean, is this your sense currently?
1: It's very difficult to know what to do for best about it. And if you look at the creationist movement and and the the backlash against that by by science, it's not necessarily been a good thing that we've been fighting creationism. I mean, it, it has in general, but it's also... Kind of given them some kudos um, that they they otherwise didn't deserve, you know. And I think that that's partly true for the singularity movement as well. That uh, a lot of the stuff they, they say is just such sheer nonsense that we shouldn't even bother talking about it. But it's not all bad. I mean, the, you know, some of the work that's being done in connection with singularity. And I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the only connection I've ever had with, with those people is um, I went to a a workshop in Washington some years ago that Ben Gertzel um organized. And that was pretty good fun. I enjoyed that. It was very symbolic top down AI, but, but at least Ben was trying to do some general intelligence work instead of all this highly specific, you know, good old fashioned AI stuff. So it's not all all bad, but I think Kurtzweil and and, and all this um, doom saying is, is a dangerous thing and, and and the public picks up on it very quickly. Very I much so.
0: To, yeah, very I much think,
1: so. I seem to spend half my time trying to put those things right, you know, by like giving lectures and things about how AI is a complete failure. I mean I have to go to the opposite extreme really and say how dreadful it all is and how how badly we've we've done. is the only doom saying one. Well that's 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 true to some extent. Uh, certainly Hugo has a pretty um, um, negative attitude to these things Uh, and he'll be in charge when the revolution happens but just the general idea that we're heading towards a singularity and superhuman intellect from machines is just absurd at the moment, there's no evidence for it whatsoever we don't have any AI, AI is a complete failure it's it's not succeeded in doing what Alan Turing said it would have done by the turn of the century Um, and it's by time we sort of put that story straight, I think.
0: So we have a caller from California on the line as well. Hello, caller from California. Hello, it's uh, Bruce Damer calling in. Hi, Bruce.
1: Oh, hey, Bruce.
0: Hello, hello. So, Bruce, you, you come into the news and notes, but you've actually had the benefit of looking to, into the whites of their eyes, or at least the, the whites of their children's eyes, with regards to the singularity movement. What's, what's your sense of the contemporary singularity movement?
2: Well, from what I can see, um, there's like a split occurred sometime last year between Singularity Institute and Singularity something or other, i.e. a group kind of went off on its own without Ray, uh, and then the Singularity University got started at at Ames, and I kind of hummed and hawed whether or not I wanted to have any association with it, Uh, and then uh, several friends said, oh, we're going down to do talks there at least. You can do, you can talk about what you're working on. And so I put my hand up in the spring and said, you know, I'd be happy to do a talk on space or the history and evolution of computing or the EvoGrid or whatever. And they they they're pretty enthusiastic and came back and said, put in a proposal. So I put in a proposal and I did the talk I think on July 8th um, down down at NASA Ames in front of a very very energetic group of, of mostly young people uh, that I was very impressed by.
0: And in terms of the crowd, as they kind of lap up around you after the talk, did you get a sense of what they're doing or, or why they're there, more importantly?
2: Well, it seems as though, and I did, I asked one of the organizers, I said, look, in my talk, I may be talking about why I agree with Steve, grand, and that there is no such thing as a singularity. It's a concept from science fiction, and there it remains in science fiction. Um, And they said, that's absolutely fine. I mean, you know, Ray is not sending the agenda, and uh, you can talk about what you want to talk about. So I did a a sort of sweep of computing history, with starting with uh, the Colossus, which I just visited in Bletchley Park and. Tony Sale, they had booted it up, and I watched it run, and then I went over to the Institute for Advanced Study and looked at the von Neumann and Oppenheimer archives, and as you know, I've been tracking the history of computing for some time, and I actually, about eight, nine years ago, Ray hired me, Ray Kurzweil hired me to generate statistics on GPU and CPU performance increases. Uh, over 25 years, which I dutifully did, and I dutifully also wrote an essay that I used. I submitted along with the data to him. This was for the Singularity book he was working on, and the essay said, Ray, this is meaningless stuff. I can give you numerous examples of why it's meaningless uh, and why the Xerox Star workstation of 1981 as far as the user's concerned, is pretty much equivalent to a computer of 2003, uh, but it has a processor one one-thousandth as powerful. But still, the entire space has been filled by other junk, and that there hasn't been substantial progress, and certainly in the operating system sphere, I mean, just many layers added, but no singularity about to occur in, in, in
0: computing that I could see. So we have William R. Buckley on the line as well. Hello, William.
3: Hello. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. We've Hi. got Steve Grand and Bruce Damer on the call already. Well, I've recognized hey, Bruce, but I I haven't heard Steve. Hello.
1: Hey. Nice to meet you.
3: Nice to meet you. So I
1: mean, could you predict
0: when you when you gave Kirzville back your graph, could you predict, you know, N core processes or any of these kind of things, Bruce?
2: Yeah, at that time and and this is the the EvoGrid project, as you know, is based on the assumption that we were going to go into an m-core multiscalar, you know, really not much faster in clock, clock rate, but really a lot more cores. Um, and what's interesting is, is of course, when Danny Hillis designed the, the thinking machine, the connection machine in the late 1980s, the question was, what on earth do we do with all these processors? Um, and, you know, of course, the Carl Sims and his evolving blocky creatures was one thing, uh, but if, when you have hundreds of, of cores, you can certainly use use them very well in a GPU and, and game graphics ch- uh, chipsets. You know, a GPU or, or a core could be used to drive every pixel on the screen, basically. So there's a use for it. Uh, there's certainly a use in the Evil Grid project itself uh, because we just need as much computing as we can. You know, trillions of, of of molecules uh, but you know that at that time i basically was saying i was cautioning ready not to just make assumptions from the either the clock rate increase or the number of cpus because basically i was agreeing with with jaron lanier when he wrote half a manifesto about the same time saying that we're really pretty bad as a species at writing software and if we expect software to write itself, we're we're doubly fooled. Uh, and if we expect software to write itself and and create a model of something called consciousness, which we don't even understand, we're triply fooled.
1: Uh, can I come in there? It's um it, it's always struck me that Moore's law is such, a, and I think Bruce is saying this, but Moore's law is more or less irrelevant because. Uh, the limiting factor in, in computer science has never been the speed of processors. It's been uh, our ability to handle that speed, and um, in particular, the design of languages. So it's been the evolution of computer languages that's been the, the bottleneck in in how we use computers, not the speed of the processor and and our ability to think. I mean, you know, if if we gave, Kurzweil and, and co a computer now that was 100 million times faster than than anything that exists and 100 million times bigger than anything exists, would it suddenly get up and walk and start being intelligent? I mean, how are they going to program it to do that? We still just don't have a clue how to do that yet.
2: And I jump, jump in here as well and just conclude with, so I, I presented the, the sweep of computing history at the Singularity University session and then um, the Evil Grid project, which in on the face of it, is very much kind of something that would interest them, although it's a, it's in a sense trying to get emergence from the lowest possible level and it, even pre-emergence, I would call it pre-evolution. And they were really enthused. They, they I think that they've had a huge smorgasbord of different talks. You know, everyone from Google to Second Life, Philip Rosedale there. To all kinds of things. They were getting really superb speakers. I mean, they were getting world-class talks. Uh, but this one, some of them came up to me at the end and said, "This is this is a really fundamentally interesting thing to us." And I, I got what I got the sense of was that none of them have the whites in the eyes, sort of passionate following the singularity idea. There were there were a couple of extropians there from the extropian movement. But for the most part, they were just bright, young people able to absorb a huge amount of information. They're, they're in their project phase now, and they're building some kinds of projects. Um, but I, I'm not sure that the, that the entire anything to do with the singularity was that much discussed that I could see, or at least raise science fiction idea of it.
0: So, Steve, you've... you've... Listen to previous Biotal Lives and particularly previous Biotal Lives that related to the EvoGrid. As we have the benefit of Bruce on the call, uh, as you listened to the previous Biotal Lives, you had some concerns associated with the EvoGrid. Can you kind of distill them and, and post them to Bruce as, as questions or uh, possible problems?
1: Uh, well, I can try, but I'll be talking out of my hat because um, I've only listened to a little bit of this and I'm not really... Up to speed with what's going on. Well, do you so, want Bruce
0: so, to give an introduction of maybe three or four minutes, which you can talk to? Would that be easier?
1: Sure, why not? Go ahead, Bruce.
0: Well, Steve, in fact, a lot of what we're doing
2: is inspired by uh, some of the, the writings you did, I think about a year ago, about ratcheting. Um, and initially, the project started out as saying, came from Dick Gordon, actually. Um, Dick Gordon's Chapter in in the book in the uh, book that, that uh, both Tom and I contributed to, and he that Steve in... contributed as well. Yes, yes, Steve, you contributed that too. Well, I did yeah. uh, Dick's chapter was Hoyle's tornado origin of origin of artificial origin of life, and basically challenging techies like us to say, you know, don't don't create an artificial life form sort of. Don't design something, start from the real basic stuff and let particles interact or some, some really, really low level atomic process start and run on mass and don't touch it and see what emerges. And you're probably not going to see little swimming machines, but you may understand the emergence of emergence. You may understand that structures can form in space and, and things can run like little catalytic reactions through time. You can get you can get sequences through time or structures in space. And do those ever go to Darwinian natural selection? They might. If there's auto-catalytic sets and things, they might. But just go back to basics. So I took that on as a challenge, which is also the subject of my PhD work. Um, and we've got a whole team going. We, we uh, selected uh, in January, we picked, went through two or three molecular dynamic simulators that are offered they are used in the in chemistry and biochemistry, and we picked Gromax from the University of Groningen and the Max Bank Institute. And it's amazing. It scales across grids, it can do hundreds of millions of particles, if not billions, and has ten years of development and and it's open source. So what we did by May is we we built an engine around it what we're trying to do to not only run GROMAX and run, run the atoms and get them to form bonds and get those resultant molecules to, to form other structures. What we're trying to do is, is build a widget that will look at the simulation, i.e., I- multiple widgets will look at the simulation pool, decide in that pool where there's something interesting going on by some definition, and throw more processors at it or throw more compute simulation space at it. To allow it to, to track itself out a little bit more and then basically feedback and say, here's more compute space for this little patch where vesicles seem to be forming. Now, we could be completely fooling ourselves, but I think of it as a shortcut to emergent complexity within this massive pool. And what we're going to do, in fact, I've hired a graduate student in South Asia. She's modifying the Boink grid, which is runs SETI at home such that we can hopefully sequester a few hundred thousand or a million computers to do the searching for the patterns of interesting stuff. So anybody could write their their own analyzer that pokes around in this huge database of particles and decide and decides to feed back information. It's almost like SETI at home upside down and that we're looking for signs of emergent complexity within our own little cosmos instead of looking at radio astronomy data from outside. So that's sort of a one-breath nutshell of of the project uh, as it stands. So we're building – we've built the feedback loop. We've run GROMAX in iteration without crashing multiple times, formed bonds, stuffed it all back into GROMAX. It runs at another 1,000 cycles and then comes – dumps out again – and now the, the analyzer is being
1: written. So that there you have it. Phew. <laughs> it, that, it's a great project. And I talked briefly to Dick about it when, when I met him a while back. And um, I looked at the code. And see, I don't I don't know Gromax, so I don't know what level of abstraction it uses. So you can maybe tell me I'm wrong here. But the, one of the things that sort of troubled me about it was the the scale problem uh, that, that um, you may be you know, five orders of magnitude out in terms of the the, the number of molecules you can actually afford to simulate. Uh, because um, I mean, if you take, let's say, um, I mean, you, usually um, it's it's a reasonable guess to say that Avogadro's number per um, gram molecule is the number of molecules you're talking about. So, so say you had a a, a soup of enzymes with a molecular uh, mass of uh, a thousand then that's uh, 6 times 10 to the 23 molecules per kilogram, which is 6 times 10 to the 11 molecules per picogram. So, so even a cell has got a hell of a lot of molecules in it. I mean, a hell of a lot. And and if you're going to try um, modeling those down at the quantum or near-quantum level, you Essentially, going to be using all the computing systems on Earth just to model the tiniest little corner of a cell somewhere. And, you're, you're, a,
2: you're absolutely correct, Steve. And in fact, we sort of hit this realization early on. And I sequestered about 20 advisors uh, for the project—people uh, from biochemistry, from origin of life studies—and uh, they came back because I wanted to say what what are we doing? What what of what value is this? And that we can only, with a large computing blue gene array, we could probably simulate a cubic centimeter of water, maybe. Um, and what <laughs> they said, if you're lucky, one of a number of them said, "Look, you don't have to do, you don't have to stick." religiously to the chemistry. Now, the chemists are saying, please stick to the chemistry. It'll give us a tremendous tool if you can make such a grid work. But they're saying, look, develop toy universes. And this is what, what Freeman um, advised me to do. Develop toy universes, toy models. Your own, what you care about is the emergence. You care about the complex structures coming up. Penny Boston was really clear on this. She's a She's a biologist that studies extremophiles in caves. And she said, look, the chemists are always going to want you to be faithful to chemistry, but you're going to need an entire planet to do what you're trying to do. So do really abstract universes. Cut corners. All you care about is showing that complex structures can emerge, and they can emerge beyond just one level. They can ratchet up through multiple levels of complexity. Do do an abstract. Basically, and this comes into uh, Bill and, of course, Tom was talking about, do it cellular automata chemistry or chemical automata, do, do something something that is really retooled down computing-wise but can still show the ratcheting complexity through time.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to have an abstract chemistry. Uh, but it's quite important to think about what kind of chemistry that is. I mean, um, biology has really got three, three classes of chemistry involved. Um, energetic chemistry... Uh, computational chemistry, and molecular biology. And um, energetic chemistry and computational chemistry are relatively similar. You could use the same kinds of abstract uh, representation for them. But in me- molecular biology, you're not really dealing with chemistry at all. It's all van der Waals forces and, uh, and nanomachines. You know, it's conformational changes in proteins. So it's much more about mechanics and chemistry. And um, from reading Dick's, First book, uh, the, the well, the <laughs> Hierarchical Genome Book. Um, it seems like those those are the things that he needs more. Is those micro machine processes, those um, systems of, of um, little mousetrap gains that trigger each other and, and you know changes in protein sizes and so on. Because those are the things that are going to generate uh, waves across embryos and, and that kind of stuff. So that's quite a different kind of chemistry to um, small molecule chemistry uh, where energies are important and or, or, um, or even autocatalytic sets of, of enzyme reactions. So you've got to get the, the model right at the, at the beginning, I think, don't you?
0: And if I can echo that, I mean, I think there's a real problem with regards to picking an existing chemical simulation and then trying to hope to tweak it to the point where you can get this kind of emergence and this is really a two-part problem because following the kind of history of the EVO group what Bruce did very skillfully initially was excite the artificial life community at the potential of this being a contributing project and as it kind of moved more into artificial chemistry to kind of chemical simulations to existing chemistry simulations trying to move it forward I think some of that momentum has lost. In in recent parallel to the EvoGrid development, as Bruce mentioned, I've been developing this chemical automata uh, simulation, which is large quantized, well, relatively large quantized space, I mean, hundreds, if not uh, thousands of. of atoms and uh, compounds formed within each of these quantized cells. But as we have the benefit of William R. Buckley on the call as well, I mean, some of this chemical automata idea was really um, inspired by having you on Bios Alive, and you're talking about Golly. Do you want to do you want to jump in here, William?
3: Well, uh, what was what was capturing my attention on the chemistry side is the notion of, uh, you know, how do you how do you really simulate chemistry? Seem to me that the fundamental operation is Brownian motion. And I don't really see that uh, simulating the motions of molecules is going to be particularly useful to even a chemistry simulation, you know, an artificial chemistry. I would think that some of the computations necessary to physical processes are ancillary or pointless relative to other physical processes that you'd like to model, and it depends on where you apply those those, uh, computational. Uh, cycles where you apply that throughput the ability to you know to model a centimeter a cubic centimeter of water is in part a uh, consequence of exactly what you mean by by modeling. How accurate do you need your model to be? and it seems to me that some of the discussion centers around uh, excessive idealization of modeling every last scintilla of behavior in the natural world. And uh, that may be some of the the source of conflict in determining whether you really have the computational resources to uh, conduct your model or not. The the thing I like about cellular automata, of course, is because it's uh, massive numbers of processors all at once. Of course, it's all implemented in simulation. It'd be nice to have a physical hardware cellular automata, something that I can tile my wall with, we we'll get millions of cells in each direction, but we're not there yet. So we still have to use these von Neumann serial processors instead of a von Neumann cellular automata. But and certainly,
0: when we had you last on, William, you, you portrayed this vision of kind of a Tierra-like evogrid. We have the, the benefit of Jay Hart, Tom Ray's uh, longtime uh, software uh, developer and, and colleague in the chat, so, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the EvoGrid idea as a, a vast tier-like simulation that you leave and just kind of peek back into occasionally to see things evolving if they're there?
3: Well, that would be my argument. Basically, to, to reiterate the talk, um, I have complaints regarding how much bias you put in your models. And some of that goes back to comments I got from Richard Dawkins regarding Core War. But, um, Ultimately, you'd like to have some kind of large environment in which to conduct your experiments. I understand that, and I understand that that's pretty much where Bruce Dahmer is going, is how to create an environment of sufficient computational capacity that we can model biological or more complicated things than you see in, say, um, inorganic chemistry. Um, but how you actually accomplish that... Is how, how you build those models will, in some sense, how efficiently you can do so, in some sense, determine, is determined by um, exactly how much detail you wish to model. And I tend to think that you know some of these, some of the notions for the bio grid or the EO, Evo grid, um, go to maybe a little bit too much length to model every last little detail of molecule motion. I don't really care that much. I don't think that it's, it's that critical to understand um, the trajectory of a particular hydrogen atom. Mm. I just don't see that that's a, a, a very big, important issue in modeling living processes. I don't think you need that much detail. I think you need other kinds of things.
1: I think this, this is what um, the art of artificial life is all about, really. If, if you look back to Chris Langton's original definition of artificial life, so that, um, or is it life as it is in, in the context of life as it could be? Life as it might uh, be. yeah. Yeah, the, the, the purpose of a life is to figure out the model, is to work out what are the uh, necessary components of any abstract model of life uh, that actually come up with the goods and produce the right emergent properties. And I think that's probably applies here in EvoGrid too, That, that this discussion about what the model should be is the art of the whole process. I'll Isn't agree
2: it? with that. That's true. And jumping, in, jumping in here a bit because I'm hoping that Peter Newman is either...
0: In <laughs> he's, he's in the chat. <laughs>
2: he's in the chat. Wonderful. So Peter, you're welcome to, jo- to join in in defense of our approach. Um, just a, a comment. I'm heading to in October to the Flint lab. I'm uh, going to see Steen Rasmussen, Gerald Fellerman and, and Martin Hanzig. Again, um, we're actually sitting down and looking at a track that's planned for Artificial Life 12. That's on this very subject, exactly this very subject: the modeling of emergence, whether it be chemistry-inspired or abstract or whatnot. A, a an actual theme for a Life 12, uh, which I'm hoping that will grow into a standalone event at some point. And I know Dick Gordon would certainly certainly like to make that biota five. Um, that emerge into biota 5, in, maybe in Winnipeg, uh, subsequent year, 2011. So I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get a tremendous amount of pull by people who are in the lab trying to make things happen in chemistry, a tremendous pull back, saying, look, we can observe things in chemistry that are happening that are computational, such as the formation of, of membranes. Can you, can you please give us the best tool that will help shine the light in the darkness And they're going to be coming back. And so both of you are right. I mean, all three of you are right. It's a dance between do we model the movement of every hydrogen atom or do we do something really abstract that a chemist would sort of look at and blink and say, well, it's all well and good, but I can't use that in day-to-day work. What Steen said was was interesting. He said the first phase of soft day life, you know, in Mark Badeau's definition of soft, wet, and hard, um, the, first, the first phase really was doing these, these abstract toy universes. And Steen basically switched his career to do the Flint project and to do the proto-life work to go back into chemistry and say we have, to, we have to go back to basics and we have to really look at how life might have emerged. We have one data point and we need to do the software side of it. And when I went to see him uh, last February, he said, "Oh my God, this is exactly what our field needs. Is this kind of work, even if it's rudimentary, even if it's just a start, um, just give us some tool like this that will really
0: help you know, shine that torch into the darkness for us here, here in the in the chemical wing of things." Do you feel mm-hmm. you're developing a tool, though, Bruce? I mean, this has been a kind of continuous narrative in parallel to the EVO Grid, the idea of summoning the EVO Grid. and we have Luke Johnson in the chat, who I spoke with on last bio live. He's a An Australian roboticist is interested in calling in and talking to you in particular, Steve. Um, But the the discussion that I had with Luke was that every artificial life developer that has had some contact with the EvoGrid has their own particular idea. And what I'm trying to do with the chemical automata simulation is say, the principles behind these things, as, as William noted as well, are relatively simple. We can all kind of cast our own ideas in software. We all have this ability because we've developed artificial life in the past why not actually create a number of these simulations in parallel that could all answer various components of the EVO group-related challenge and create a kind of plurality of solutions that, you know, maybe the uh, biologists like, maybe the chemists like, maybe the science fiction authors like. I mean, maybe all these groups can be uh, agreeable to at least one of the simulations that are generated, but that way the artificial life community in terms of, you know, folks have been developing this stuff as, as Steve has for you know two decades. Can utilize this amazing collective knowledge to create a series of projects. I mean, what do you think about that, Bruce? Oh, you you've absolutely pegged it. You
2: you you hit the uh, the golf ball to the nine yard line or whatever you would whatever analogy you could come up with. In and in fact, the there should be a plurality of approaches. Um, it will be a all a richer effort, and what I what I think Peter and I are trying to do with this this first thing we're calling an EvoGrid is saying, hey guys, it all seems to come down to um, if if we want the things to emerge, then we're we're running a black box somewhere, and the black box is running a huge amount of computation, and you can't visualize it all, and you can't with the human aided eye look at it, but what you can do is build these artificial eyes that are distributed on many, many computing systems to look for interesting stuff. And if you find interesting stuff, you could flag it and the human eye could look at it, or you could decide to drive the simulator in some some manner. I think it's it's the EvoGrid technique, it's that very technique, which is like SETI at home, it's derivative of SETI at home, but it actually has a feedback mechanism to... Try to generate more interesting stuff in the simulation so the evil grid at a meta level is, is publishing and promoting an approach to doing this kind of thing
1: could you both have um have a meta model actually have an, an infrastructure for producing chemical models of various kinds so you've got some kind of common software that could be used as a tool for all because it strikes me that if, you, if you're not careful You'll you um, not be able to please all of the people, and you'll end up having to write billions of lines of code because everyone wants fundamentally different models. Um, and it may be that there's, there's some kind of common themes of all possible models of chemistry, and that you can come up with an abstraction in the in the same way as Turing came up with the universal Turing machine as a kind of abstraction of all possible machines. Maybe you can do that with chemistry too. That there's a, a, a a common underlying meta model for chemistry, from which you can then make experimental uh, abstract chemistries and compete them with each other, and you know, um, find out which ones produce the most emergent results.
2: Yeah, that that actually is is, is crisply stated. That that in fact, I've just reread a, bio, a biography of Turing to try to understand the the environment of the late 1930s when he was looking at promoting the idea of mathematical machines. And and it, you're exactly right. I mean, it, in a sense, there's almost a mathematical model that's called for sort of distributed uh, large-scale emergent uh, simulation with analysis of bits and pieces of that simulation space. So it could contain Williams automata. It could contain chemical automata that Tom is talking about. It could contain bouncing pieces of geometry, you know, a, a, polygonal, a polygonal chemistry, a polygonal universe. It really could be anything, but it will always perhaps be a, a giant Turing machine that is, that is running and generating a huge amount of stuff to look at, and then there will be little Turing machines reading those, those tapes and looking for patterns. And, and maybe that's, that's a, in its simplest terms, what, what these grids are.
1: It's an interesting parallel with um, neural networks and and neuroscience, uh, I think, because um, if you look at a real brain and and real neurons, I mean, a single real neuron is an incredibly complex machine with dozens of different external chemicals, hundreds of different genes being involved in in the synaptic changes and so on. So so if you're trying to write the the recipe for a single neuron, you'd have something with maybe 10,000 variables in it. And the trouble is, we don't know which of those ten thousand variables is relevant to actually thinking. Uh, we don't know which ones are necessary and which ones are just a consequence of earth biology and, and uh, are just there to make the whole system work, like the sort of valves and pipes that run around a, a jet engine. Um, and so, what happened way back in in the early days of AI was that the connectionists thought, oh well, a neuron must be a machine that sums its inputs, and um, so. Uh, sum of products became the basis of the connectionism, and almost all of the connectionism has grown out of that. But, but it's wrong. I mean, real neurons aren't simple sum of products devices, and there's, there's, almost certainly there are a lot of variables in real neurons turn out to be far more important than people gave them credit for. And this, this is a similar thing that, that, um, that William was saying that, that there's a hell of a lot of variables in chemistry. We don't know which ones are relevant or, and which ones can be ignored. But that is what artificial life is there for, is trying to establish these things, trying to figure, figure out which are the, the crucial variables, which ones are uh, necessary for all chemistries.
2: And I, so I think ju- jumping, I in, jumping in here, there's one measure, uh, one wonderful measure. If we see, if we define what we want to come out of these black boxes, these ego grids, and we start seeing the, the stuff the behavior the structures emerging it actually it, it, it it's what you're looking for it's not trying to characterize or model uh, the entire universe that you've decided to create it's actually does it produce does it does it does it come up with the things that you think of as as, as emergent complexity or structures or behaviors etc so if the proof is in the pudding in the sense in the eating.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and this uh, that's a hierarchical thing too. You don't necessarily have to wait until ribosomes form or whole cells form or anything like that. You can look at your protochemists, your your candidate chemical models, and look for simple things like the beginnings of membrane formation um, and uh, conformational changes in molecules and uh, ion channel type behavior, and, and so that there are relatively simple properties that you could you could detect to find out whether your model of chemistry shows some signs of being in the, on the right lines. And maybe you could do some of those early tests before you sort of let the thing loose on, on the bigger stuff.
0: So just before we round out this topic, Steve, has has Bruce been able to convince you? Are you a convert to the EVO grid?
1: Oh, well, I was never uh, a, a, a naysayer to the concept. I love the concept. I mean, that's what we're all trying to do in our digital life is has come up with the minimal system to use for maximal complexity, and EvoGrid's grids a great start and um, uh, My only concerns were whether you 'd all been able to think through some of these essentially philosophical issues about what classes of chemistry are necessary which, which properties are necessary and sufficient, um, and whether you might end up writing hundreds of thousands of lines of code and going down the wrong the wrong road, so that was my only concern. But I think the project is a great idea, and I'm all for it.
0: And has this concern been resolved this evening?
1: Um, Yeah, it it seems like you've been thinking about it. Um, I still think there's a long way to go. Um, And one of the things that we haven't talked about that I'd like to be convinced a bit about was this notion of of machines for detecting interesting things you know, pattern detectors that say, oh, look over here, something good is going on. Because that's actually a pretty demanding problem in AI terms. Uh, How do you detect what an interesting thing looks like? I mean, it's hard enough to get a uh, a pattern detecting system to recognize the capital A, let alone something interesting and biological, you know? Uh, So that would worry me a bit. Maybe you're glossing over some of the difficulties there.
0: Yes, I'm writing a book chapter on exactly that topic currently, how uh, one searches through this uh, algorithmic soup and actually finds things of interest. So I think it's something that the community is considering quite seriously currently, Steve, even if it isn't being uh, actively talked about.